the first question I want to know is, you know, can this be resolved on a dispositive motion? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need a realistic answer to that. I mean, I have had, I've had attorneys file a motion for summary judgment without consulting with me. And when I ask them what the likelihood is, it's 10%. I'm like, why did you spend $15,000 for the likelihood of being successful at 10%? You know, um, we can't. And why did you file a motion without talking to me about it? Oh, it's more than you think. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, Megan, and today I'm joined by Melissa Schroeder. And I'm so excited to have Melissa on uh, because her and I talked like months ago and you know, it, our scheduling just never worked out uh, we, to, to get her on. Um, and she followed up recently and it, the stars aligned. Um, so I'm so happy to have her on to talk about, you know, her career and where she's been and where she's going. So with that, let's bring her in. Good morning, Melissa. Welcome to the Defense of Arrest. How are you today? Good morning, Ma- uh, Good morning, Megan. I'm doing really good. How are you doing? Great. I'm so happy to have you. You and I, we were just chatting about this. You and I had talked like back in October, November, yes. um, and had planned on recording this then, and then just life got in the way. <laughs> and so it kind of just didn't happen until now, but I, you know, that's the beauty of, of this. Like, I, you know, just cause we talked back then doesn't mean we can't revisit now. And I'm so happy you're joining me today. I'm really happy to be here. Well, you know, I, I know you've listened to this podcast, um, and for my for my listeners out there, you know, I, I really like to get in and get to know my guests, so every, uh, people listening can get to my guests, and, you know, the framework of this podcast is to talk to people in claims, about claims, but talk to attorneys <laughs> who work on defense work, um, and we all have really unique paths in ways that we kind of got to, to where we are, um, and you start. You started off as an attorney. You went to law school, um, and well, and you still are an attorney. Not that you're just <laughs> just ended and went to the side, but you know what was your, you know, how how did what was your path to law school? Was it something you had intended to do, or did it kind of, you know, you ended up there because it was the best option for you at that time? Like everyone ha- approaches it a little bit differently. What was your approach? Um, when I got into college is when I really started taking a hard look at um, going to law school. I had a few different majors that were all aligned with um, a current law. I started off with political science and then moved on to crime law and justice, but then ultimately decided on an English major um, just because I felt that, that would be special, you know, with writing briefs and motions and, and different things like that. So um, I always knew I wanted to go probably since my freshman year of college. So you actually had like an idea of what law school is about, which is rare. Like the fact that you would know that there was like writing motions. I didn't know that. <laughs> like that was all you, stuff I kind of um, discovered. <laughs> growing up, um, my father, for um, a shelter for abused and battered women um, in Miami-Dade County. And then he moved on to the state level um, in Tallahassee. And um, he very frequently had to write um, grant proposals um, and try to get funding. And he worked very closely with a lot of different attorneys. So growing up, I was kind of exposed to uh, various attorneys um, with various practices. Yeah. Well, you know, that's really good, like, experience to have going in, like, and having a better 
under kind of uh, at least a better framework of what you might expect at least in the real world um because I do feel like a lot of times in law school you you don't really unless you at at least at my school unless you had the opportunity to do a clinic like you're not really getting much practical experience and you had a little bit of that exposure early on yes and I did a clinic (laughs) (laughs) Uh, what did you do a clinic on it was an international law clinic. We um, basically argued um, for asylum rights for um, Tibetan individuals. And we would just go and um, our teacher was pretty hands-off and just would try to just observe us in the background. And it was good because it was a good experience to get your feet wet because once you establish that they are Tibetan, they're pretty much guaranteed you know, asylum. So it was, yeah. it was a good first, you know, first impression for me in law. I actually had a very similar type clinic. So like a similar experience and it, you know, and it was hard work too, but it felt very, um, like very rewarding to do as well. Yes. So, you know, everyone has, I think, differing opinions to about their like law school experience. You know, did you find your experience to be a positive one um, or one that you would like recommend to someone else? I definitely think it was give me the opportunity to participate um, in the Frederick Douglass moot court. And then my last, when I was a three, was the, um, the like overseer of that for my school. And so I, I really enjoyed, you know, the hands-on approach and just and to know like my, you know, now they're my colleagues, um, but you know, my, my classmates at the time. You know, when, when you graduated or actually when you were in, in school, did you have an idea of, you know, the, the type of work you wanted to do? I thought I was going to go into international law. I didn't ever think I was going to be in employment. I just kind of fell into it. But then once I fell into it, I really liked it. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think we all have like these lofty dreams of like what we think we want to do. I think when I started law school, I was like, I, I wanted to do go uh, be like a patent attorney because I had the science mm-hmm. background and I was like, okay, yeah, this is totally for me. And then when I was in law school, I realized like all these other, you know, students who also wanted to go into patent law, like they had much stronger science background. So while like I had the the credits that I could sit for the patent exam, I kind of knew that like my background wasn't strong enough to actually probably get me a job, you know, I mean, maybe if I pass, if I took the patent exam and passed, maybe that would make me pretty marketable. But I, I just knew comparatively speaking, like, oh, well, this person has like a master's in like biomedical engineering. And I'm like, well, I had like a math m- major like (laughs) so you know so you have to pivot and change your path a little bit and uh, you know and that I think is also a a continuing theme throughout our our careers is the ability to pivot (laughs) um so when you graduated though you went in you went into private practice uh, in employment law uh yes I um I ended up a practitioner uh, Matthew Wolf, who is now um, a municipal court judge in Philadelphia, um, he w- primarily focused on employment law, but it was general practice, so I was exposed to other other different types of um, cases and stuff like that. But primarily, I focused on employment law. And you know, in your role working as an employment attorney, like what were some of the challenges that that you had on your your day to day handling, you know, those cases and files, and you know. Uh, we all have our, our challenges. So what were yours? Um, I think a big one was managing clients' expectations. Um, 
Usually, you know, when somebody has lost their job or feel like they're being discriminated at work, emotions are very high. And so um, plaintiffs would come in um, and they would be very adamant that they didn't do anything wrong or very adamant that they were discriminated against and believe that they were entitled to very large sums of money. Um, because you hear on the news, you know, somebody was sexually harassed and they got a million dollars, but that's, you know, that's a very rare instance where you're going to get acknowledgement much or a settlement for that much. So managing their expectations, um, I think was primarily one of the more difficult things and, um, um, just and managing emotions. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, it's managing emotions and expectations and it can be the hardest thing to do, particularly like in that and in your shoes is, you know, when you have clients who they, 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 they feel very wronged and, you know, violated and, you know, and their feelings are valid. It just, it's, you have to temper their expectations as to what those feelings equate to in, in the legal system. Exactly. And, and that experience actually was really beneficial for when I went over to claims because it's the same, it can be the same thing with employers who feel that they did everything right, that they did not discriminate against this employee and um, they just want to fight it tooth and nail. And if you're, especially if you're dealing with, um, you know, a smaller business or a small business owner, you know, this is very personal to them. It's not the same as like a large corporation that's used to, you know, getting charges and demands and lawsuits filed against it. So um, being like having early on in my career, managing plaintiff's expectations really helped me uh, managing insured's expectations as well. Yeah. And I, I talk about this a lot um, because, you know, the small businesses, especially litigation can be so disruptive to them because yeah, say it, a lot of it, they, they take it personally, but also like it's, it's not a common occurrence. So it, it's disruptive because it's new and it's different and it's unfamiliar. And you know, you have to kind of help them like walk through the process and make them feel comfortable with the process and that you got them, you know, you got their back in this because it's a lot, you know, whether it be an employment claim or, you know, a, a personal injury claim or whatever it may be, it's very disruptive to the business. Exactly. And also with, um, especially with small businesses, it seems like they have particular attorneys that they're used to, that they've worked with for a while. And that particular firm or attorney might not be well-versed in employment law. They might be great at other things, but not employment law and trying to, to navigate with the insured to have the best legal representation can also be complicated as well. Yes. Yeah. And you, and you kind of can sympathize to that too. Cause they're like, Oh, well, you know, I've used Johnny for years. I trust Johnny. I like Johnny. You know, he knows, he knows me and he knows the business, but like, but Johnny doesn't know anything about employment. So like, yeah, if you know, someone was injured on your property, Johnny might be your go-to or like exactly. what, whatever the, it, 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 that is very difficult to, to navigate. Um, and and you have to help that insurer to build that trust up with this new new council well, who's helping them out with the you know the the employment matter exactly so what are some th- like in your role or were there some you know tactics or strategies you use to help your insurance feel comfortable with you know the council if they were unfamiliar with them uh, yeah i mean usually 
with the um, insurance companies, whether or not they have a panel counsel list or, you know, just attorneys that they frequently work with, there is a vetting process that we use, you know, to make sure that that, that firm, you know, appropriately feels that they timely respond to, to communications, that they, um, you know, provide the best defense and not try to just take it all the way to trial only to settle it when it's not in the best interest of their client. Mm-hmm. And just explaining that to them and also giving them um, choices between various firms. You know, let them know like these firms are the ones that I've worked with in Philadelphia. And I think X, Y, and Z is a great firm. Um, but if you feel more comfortable with this firm and give them a list of approved counsel and let them choose. Yeah. have the choice to at least decide what firm that they want to go to because if they have a choice they could even if they have a counsel that they do like they can always consult with that counsel like hey have you ever heard of this firm do you know are they reputable do you like them do you suggest that I go with them um and so that can be helpful with them just providing yeah. different options and different choices absolutely and it's 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 there's so much of it is about like giving them the opportunity to, to choose and like come, come up with their own decisions so they're not feel like someone's being just thrust upon them. So one thing that you, um, you and I had spoke about with, or spoke about when we talked months ago was, you know, the challenges of navigating so many claims at, at once. When, you, when you're in that claims manager position, like, you know, you have a lot on your plate. <laughs> <laughs> so you know how do you keep like what, do you have like systems in place that you know help you keep tabs on you know all your all your files um well uh i've utilized spreadsheets um of both uh insurers insurers that i've worked with you know do have a diary system within their claims uh, handling system um which you can also utilize i personally like um like just using Office and Outlook, because um, I can sync it up to my phone. Um, I can sync it up to Teams, and you know, just it's very well structured and organized. Yeah. Um, so, but everybody I know has different preference on how they like to keep track of everything. I have certain colleagues that really rely on a spreadsheet, and that's their go-to. And others really, really rely on their calendar and setting reminders. Yeah, yeah. I'm like a combo of the two. And I think, I think I've been told I have too many systems in place, <laughs> but like I can probably simplify it a little bit. Um, but you know, what, a, you know, and you, you've mentioned Philadelphia, like I I'm also based in Philadelphia. So I'm very familiar with the Philadelphia litigation landscape and the challenges that, um, we see in our, our wonderful city. Um, and so, you know, what are some challenges that you've experienced with litigating claims, whether it be in Philadelphia or other, other jurisdictions um, that kind of cause you, cause you litigation headaches? Um, well, the location for one, and also it can be complicated as well. If um, I don't have counsel that I'm familiar with working with and it's in a jurisdiction that I've just never dealt with, like I had a claim one time in Billings, Montana, and I'm not well versed in Montana law. Uh, luckily, I, we had a great firm on that, and we were able to get um, a very nice settlement at mediation. But um, you know, just there's you know, every state has its own legal system in place, and, and things can be extremely nuanced. And um, you know, that's when I have to like heavily rely on defense counsel to provide me, you know, the re- the requisite information so that I can that I can value the claim properly. Um, so that I would say that could be one of the biggest headaches for me. Um, 
And then also just not timely getting um, case assessments and budgets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I do feel like that for some reason that, that I I don't know why this is a common, common complaint I I hear, or I don't know if it's complaint, criticism, whatever it may Mm -hmm. be, but the, you know, the failure to like keep on top of cases and files. And I, I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> like, I, like, I just, I, I, I mean, I get it to some respect that like, okay, you can get busy and some things could like, you know, but I don't know. I feel like you, you should be checking in on everything, you know, on a consistent basis. I think when it comes to at least case assessments. Um, I feel like some firms or some attorneys feel not comfortable providing an overall assessment on some, on, that they that has just started they don't want to be wrong even though at any point in time we can always reevaluate the claim you know discovery could change the complete analysis um and i just think that sometimes they're just attorneys can be just nervous to provide information and then later have to come back and say i was wrong yeah which okay. that happens change because evolve yeah and also i think the idea should be more so like, okay, not that you were wrong, but new information arise that changed the prior assessment. Um, and that's okay. New information arises all the time. <laughs> um, right. But I agree. I think early on, you should be able to be able to see, be like, okay, is this one, you know, are, are, this one I mean, initially, is this mediation matter? Is this a, you know, risk transfers or someone else we can transfer the risk to like that. You, you should be able to know that within the first like 45 days, what, what your options may be to, to move it and not just kick the can down the road because you need to kick the can down the road, you know, um, you know, and one thing that, you know, we had spoke about too, is, you know, the, are you, or we touched on if your feelings as to younger, like green attorneys, working on on files and getting their experience and you know I I think there's two perspectives on it like you need to give younger attorneys experience otherwise they're never going to be old attorneys with experience (laughs) but it's hard from a you know a claims manager perspective because let's face it like younger attorneys might spin the wheels a little bit more and you know kind of might fumble around a a little bit so you know what are you know your thoughts on you know, having a, a greener attorney, um, you know, kind of take the reins on a file or does it just depend? Um, I, I mean, I agree with you that, you know, younger attorneys do need to be um, provided with experience. Um, I don't have any problems working with younger attorneys. The only problems that really arise, I feel, is when they are spinning their wheels and are billing excessively because of that, when they, you know, we have to think of the, the insured's interest as well. Um, you know, the billing has to be appropriately done. So if it takes that associate a little bit longer to do something that would probably do, they're going to have to, we're going to have to have an awkward conversation when um, the bills are reviewed. And especially if you, if it's with um, a carrier that has a, a billing system where, yeah. you know, line items will, will be cut. Yes. Yes. We all love those. <laughs> 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 you always love when those come back You're like oh all right like let's let's see what's going on here <laughs> um but you know i i do think there's something to be said about giving you know younger attorneys 
you know, the opportunities and I appreciated it as a younger attorney. I needed that experience. I needed to do, do that work, but I also needed someone to kind of guide me along the way. So I would, there'd be less spinning of the wheels. Um, but also there is something to be said about spinning your wheels, not necessarily the client has to pay for your wheel, wheel spin, but mm-hmm. that during those times, and you probably remember this too, during those times that you're trying to figure it out, it's a very important, you know, critical thinking process and, you know, while it might take a younger attorney much longer to figure it out, that that critical thinking, I think, is very important for their growth. So it just has to be a balance between what, you know, you probably can't build for all of that time that they're figuring out, but the process of figuring it out, I think, is really important. I agree, especially um, when you get the foundation of having that thought process, when you come across, you know, a novel claim you can already have the experience to kind of, you know, mentally evaluate it and see, you know, like strengths and arguments, because sometimes that happens where you've never seen something like this and you have to, like, you have to take a different approach than you would take from, um, you know, other, like your run of the mill, you know, lawsuits. And and don't we all love the novel claim, the one that you haven't seen? Like those always get me a little excited because you're like, oh, this is something new. Like there's new stuff to dig into and find out about and research. Like, you know, that's what makes our jobs interesting is when you have, you, you get different things all the time. It's not always the same. Um, so I, I embrace those, those moments, even though, you know, there is some extra thought that has to go into them. (laughs) Um, so, but one thing, you know, we had talked about though, is going with the experience or an experience of younger attorneys is trial experience. And it's just a problem I think we're seeing across the board is that these things don't go to trial as much anymore. So then people aren't getting that trial experience. And, you know, so is that something like prior trial experience? Is it something that you, you like, you really look at to be like, okay, like, you know, I really like this attorney because they have X, Y, and Z a trial experience, but also recognizing that we're not seeing a lot of that anymore. So you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, prior trial experience, given the current uh, scenario that we, you know, they're, it's, it's not as common as it was, I think, 20 years ago. Um, I really not as common. Very few things go to trial. Um, I'm trying to think in my experiences, I hate how many claims I've had go to trial. Maybe two. And almost nine so it's it's really not not a very frequent thing um Wait, you, you're, I, you I, cut out for a second how many claims did you have to go to trial i'm curious i really need to hear the answer two not <laughs> a lot <laughs> yeah i was it's like settled. that sound at first i thought you said 90 and i was like whoa that's <laughs> no no, <laughs> no i said in the nine years i've been handling claims oh. i think i've only had about two to go to trial um so i'm not terribly worried um when working with counsel on um you know, their, their trial experience. Uh, however, I, I mean, it's important that that attorney recognize if this is going to go to trial and, um, you know, what their, their game plan is going to be, because sometimes you have insurance that are just dead set on taking the case to trial. And so you have to make sure, you know, the attorney is able to, to ex- explain the risks 
of going to trial to the like the real risks of going to trial to the to the insured, and um, you know just providing all the information. And typically, a lot of the firms that that I've used um, while handling claims are larger firms. So if the associate doesn't have trial experience, you know there's going to be a partner that's also on the case too right. that more likely than not has had trial experience in his or her career. Yeah. So I don't think it's necessary to like know right up, up front whether or not um, if the, or right, it's not necessary to know that the or for the um, attorney to have significant trial experience. Yeah, I one of the aspects I think is, in my opinion, even more important or equally as important as having the actual trial experience is trial preparation experience because there is some because a lot yeah, a lot of times you do prepare for trial or you need to anticipate what you're going to need and that you have to think ahead and that is something that I think is very valuable you know not necessarily yeah like I went to verdict or whatever it may be but knowing early on in the case well if this were to go to trial I am going to need this expert or I'm going to need this and that is something that is learned with experience um and is something that needs to be i think trained for younger younger attorneys to that's uh, that's kind of how you set up your case sometimes you know especially if you're looking doing that early evaluation and you're like well i don't know if this is going to be a good one for mediation so like let's have a framework that we are really setting this up and lining it up that this could potentially be a trial case and having that in your mind when you're working up the the claim in the file. Oh, I completely agree. And especially when, you know, you first get uh, the initial case or claim, um, the first question I want to know is, you know, can this be resolved on a dispositive motion? Mm -hmm. And, you know, you need a realistic answer to that. I mean, I have had I've had attorneys file a motion for summary judgment without consulting with me. And when I ask them what the likelihood is, it's 10%. I'm like, why did you spend $15,000 for the likelihood of being successful at 10%? You know, um, we and, can't. And why did you file a motion without talking to me about it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's more than you think. Um, you know, that firms will go ahead and file, um, you know, motions without consulting uh, with handlers, which goes back to, you know, what I was saying in the beginning, it's really important that we have trusted counsel on the claim, you know, that I, there are certain firms that I know for a fact, know the litigation guidelines will come and say, you know, will provide me a budget, will say, you know, I'm, I need to file a dispositive motion. It's going to cost $10,000. I think we'll be able to, um, you know, we have a, like a 75% likelihood of success, or if the, the, the goal is to knock certain counts out of the, the lawsuit, you know, for, for strategy, um, it's really important to be able to rely on counsel to provide that information um, at the beginning. And obviously it, it can change as the case goes by, especially with discovery, but um, it's really, really important that, that we have counsel that re that's, you know, keeps us in the loop. Yeah. And, and follows the guidelines. I, I think that should be like, follow the guidelines, people. <laughs> like they're there for a reason. <laughs> it's not that hard. <laughs> I agree. Uh, yeah, because that's, I, I was just going to segue into managing outside counsel. Um, 
And well, one of my questions was like, what are your pain points? I think we already got, we got it. Like, you know, <laughs> don't go filing motions without talking yeah. to your claims handler about it. It's, it's not, not a good look. <laughs> and, and without talking to the insured about it, because the insured, I mean, if, if the insured has a long, a large retention, you know, they're going to be paying for a lot of this stuff before, yes. um, you know, the insurer um, obligation is triggered. Um, and, you know, it's, if we're talking about a small business owner, he or she might not understand the point of filing a motion for summary judgment. And, you know, they, they might, they might just think that, okay, well, this is part of the process and not realize that maybe it's not a good idea to file one. Um, so it's, re it's really important that the, the insured is also kept in the loop as well, because, you know, that is, it's their money, you know, it's their livelihood, it's their business. And, you know, yeah. they deserve to, you know, be a part of the direction in which, you know, the litigation is taking, um, is headed to. And, and I think to that point, it's also very important to understand and I think this goes without saying, but I, I apparently we have to say it because I don't think people always get it. Understanding the policy at hand, like again, if you're, you know you have an insured with a self, you know, with a, a, a SIR, they need to be like really involved. It's their money, you know, and you can't just you know move for keep them out of the loop. And I think that's a a, a real negative to some to some. Um, to some counsel, you know, that you, 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 it's a, that you're not keeping the insured in the loop and not understanding that, especially in like with these self, with self-insured retentions that they, they have a say in this and you have to like inform them and talk to them and explain to them, you know, what you're doing and what the impact is and what the financial impact is because the dollars are coming out of their pocket as well. Exactly. And especially it's important when you have a claim that has uncovered loss. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, as the handler, I would be speaking with the insured on how we would allocate, you know, covered loss versus uncovered loss. But it's important that defense counsel also knows that there's an allocation in place. They don't need to know the specifics because obviously that could create a conflict if we start getting too much, if counsel starts getting too much into coverage. But, you know, if they know for a fact that, you know, a certain amount of um, counts in a lawsuit aren't covered, that the insured is going to have to, you know, pay that out of pocket. It's important for them to know that as well. Yes. And so I think it's also important for them to know, like, just general things that are normally not covered in a policy, for example, like a wage an hour um, claim, you know, I, I don't know any insurers that provide indemnity coverage for wage an hour, um, but they'll provide, depending on the policy language of defense, it's important for counsel to, you know, to know that. Yes, absolutely. Continuing on on that, though, you know, we know what you don't, what you're not looking for with counsel, but what are some traits with outside counsel as a claims manager that you applaud and, you know, you really seek out in, in your, you know, uh, attorney partner partnerships with in, you know, in your claims? Um, timely budgets, timely case assessments, um, you know, making sure that I'm CC'd on correspondence with the insured, that I'm kept, um, when they keep me um, in the loop of like all settlement um, discussions, because you'd be surprised how many settlement discussions can occur. And I just find out when they need money. Um, <laughs> See, that, that's like, I, I think that's also a big like red flag. Like, <laughs> I don't know, something I learned um, rightfully so very early on is you can't offer money. You don't have, <laughs> exactly. but and, there are, 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say there are certain nuances, like, you, you know, certainly there's conversations you can have with counsel and they could say like, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're looking for this and you could be like, okay, like I don't have anything, but if I were to, if I were able to get X, would that be something that you could entertain? So you're not promising anything. You're not saying I haven't, and then go back to, Hey, I had this conversation with counsel. Like we were talking about the case. We were, you know, I, I was pushing them on what their bottom line number is and you know, they said if they had, if we were to bring X, they would settle for that X. Is that a possibility for us? Like that's, I, that happens all the time, but that's not off. Like that's not actually trying to resolve a case without the authority to resolve it. You're trying to help the resolution process. I mean, otherwise you're just, it's malpractice. <laughs> it's, it, and it gets tricky because, you know, every carrier is different. Um, some carriers will take an offer without um, making an offer without consent as setting the floor, and that could really affect the insured self-insured retention. Other carriers have policy language that if it's going to be resolved it's within the retention, they don't need to consult with with um, the insurer. So it's really important that you know counsel knows exactly what he or she can offer. Yes, yeah, and if they have a, they have to have approval for that from yeah. from the insured. Um, and so. keeping with um, uh, with getting authority, I think it's also extremely important that it's recognized that handlers have authority based on their experience and not all handlers have the same um, authority level. And so if, if counsel's coming to me asking me, you know, saying we need a million dollars, that's going to have to go way above my head. And that takes time, you know, to, um, to, to, or to explain, like, to explain why we need that money and the strengths and weaknesses of the case. So if, if I don't, if I'm not timely notified of a large, um, like settlement demand or valuation, it can delay getting anything approved because it has to go through, there's channels, there's steps that have to be taken in order to secure that authority. Yeah. And, and that's another um, huge pet peeve I, I hear a lot, though, too, is not giving enough notice to to your, your claims managers or your claims partners in anticipation of a, a settlement event, you know. Um, and I, again, like, and I think it's a lack of understanding of those processes and procedures that your your carrier needs to go through and or your adjuster your adjuster needs to go through with their with the carrier in order to get the appropriate funds and like you know you might have settlement authority without talking to a manager or whoever for fifty thousand dollars but in order to get a hundred and twenty five thousand dollars you might need to go to two extra people and yeah. there might be round tables it's going to take a few weeks and this is why you know you if you know you have a mediation on x date look at the guidelines <laughs> mm-hmm. or if it's not in the guidelines just ask say, hey, Melissa, I know we have this mediation. When when do you need my pre-mediation report so you can put your ducks in a row so we can come to this mediation and try to resolve it? Exactly. There's nothing worse than getting a pre-mediation report two days before mediation and they're asking for a lot of money. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And it's just not a good look either. You know, like yeah. if I were you and I got that report two days before, I'd be like, oh, okay, what's going on here? And like, sometimes there might be some other circumstances. Maybe you talked about it. Maybe there was something else going on that you said, okay, that's fine. You know, mm-hmm. I, but 
typically speaking, most most carriers need 30 plus days in anticipation of a, a settlement event <laughs> in order to get the proper authority. Yes. And I mean, maybe it was, sometimes there's situations where maybe you just scheduled that mediation a week ahead of time. Like you got an opening with a mediator and they, they got you in a cancellation spot. So it was a quick thing that that's a different scenario, but you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, there's always, you know, exceptions to, to the role. You know, <laughs> to the role. I mean, I would never fault somebody if we were wanting a specific mediator and they were booked up and all of a sudden there was an opening and we had to rush. I mean, that's, that's just part of life. So unexpected things happen. Yes. Um, but you know, when it becomes habitual on a regular basis, it, yes. it can be a problem. Yeah. Cause I, I imagine you can't help but question in that scenario being like, okay, so what's going on here? Like, do you have too much on your plate? Are you just poor at managing your, your plate, you know, or, or, or are you like lazy? Like I'm sure in your mind, you're going through all these things, like what's going on here? Like why, why isn't my counsel getting, you know, getting me these things timely? I never really think that people are lazy. I just think that, you know, (laughs) I just think that, I put words in your mouth. I sometimes think that. I think people get busy, um, you know, and I also think it's like you said that sometimes they, it's not always known the process in which handlers have to go to secure authority when it's outside of our authority. Yeah. Um, I very much appreciate when I get a case assessment from counsel and in the case assessment, they give me a settlement value and then they also give me a total exposure value because then I can actually, I have time to put the money up. Um, and make sure that the reserves are, um, you know, adequate. And so if I, if, if I get an initial report, I can have the reserve set pretty quickly. And my, if an emergency happens where I have to get authority right away, at least the money's up on the file and yeah. I don't have to, it's a lot easier to do. Yeah. And I think that we, the idea of reserves, again, I think is something that a lot of, particularly younger attorneys don't understand what reserves mean. I didn't understand it you know, way back when I didn't understand what reserves meant and with the significance. I remember getting those claim files and seeing like the pre, you know, whatever pre-suit claim and seeing the reserves. And I had no true understanding of what that meant. It took me time to figure out. No one told me either. I just had to figure it out, you know, Um, but it's so important to understand. So yeah, one thing that you and I had, had talked about though a while back is, you know, the struggles that, you know, we both have you know being a professional woman and trying to push our careers forward but also like we're we're mothers and you have kids and you know add the working from home and hybrid and all that into it like some things it makes life easier but then it also makes things a lot more difficult because you know things all kind of blend blend together so you know how have you managed to balance like the this all-encompassing world that like you know our, our homes are our offices and you know, kids are around and they're not around. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So, you know, how have you managed to, to juggle that? Um, well, I think the pandemic taught me definitely it does take a village that I cannot do it all on my own. Um, I frequently use my mother to help with my kids, um, mm-hmm. to pick them up from school, um, and whatnot. Um, and then also I think with the, with the remote working has really helped being able to use like flex hours. You know, I'm a very early riser, so I can work. If I have to do something with the kids in the afternoon, I can get up really early and work, you know, and then, you know, just try to 
try to flex my hours as much as possible. Um, but I definitely learned that I have to utilize asking people for help and not assume that I can do all of it because it's just impossible. Yes. Yeah. I, I feel you. I'm not very good on the asking help part, but I feel, <laughs> feel you on it. Um, but I find it's been really important that like I, I, I look back and I kind of so happy that now I, I can give to my kids, like I am home when they come home from school. And I, I try to like take that time to put my work to the side for, you know, that time when they're doing homework and like, I'm asking about their day. Cause you know, I hope at least they'll look fondly back on that. And to say it's always perfect. No, there's some days that I'm still there on my computer and I'm like, okay, I can't really chat with you right now, but I'm trying to make a more conscious effort to be more present when they come home from school. And so they can, un, un, you know, dump their day on me. Um, and I, I actually have the ability to be able to push it to the side for a little bit and be there for them. Um, but yeah, like you said, like this, the, the flexible scheduling allows again for like you to be more present go bring to sports practice or there's a game or whatever it is like you can be there at those things um a little bit easier than I think it used to be yeah definitely and also I mean in in claims you know the the work the remote remote working and work from home environment has been something that they've it's been pretty common in claims like well before the pandemic it's just now it's just much more prevalent with with everybody which I think is is great even though it can have some struggles to it <laughs> um but um you know having having said that though how do you know what other than waking up early are there any things that you do to like carve to make sure you carve out some time for for yourself so that you're you know um you're more present and you're able to like be present at your at work and then also present at home um I mean I just my well I mean my life took a very unexpected turn I ended up um filing for divorce and um in that process I I, I split my time with my kid's father and um they're with me and it it really allows me when they're with him to be uninterrupted I can use that time to work I can use that time to rest I can do a self-care day um you know depending you know on what's going on in my life um and that that actually even though unfortunately my marriage ended um <laughs> you know it it really I mean it really has freed up a lot of my my time to not have the kids constantly and I'm able to like focus on myself or my job or you know my yeah. you know my mental health and I think the pandemic has really taught us that you know mental health is just as important as your physical health yeah and also with that then you know when you're devoting your time to yourself and your work when you don't have your kids like then you have extra you don't feel so pulled towards the work when when your your kids are with yes, you so you exactly. can focus focus on them um and you know and one thing i wanted to touch on too um is you know you you recently had a, a career pivot which we've you know career pivots are career pivots um but i didn't want to close up this podcast without you know being able to showcase you and you know you you know your experience but also like you know what are you looking for in you know during this career pivot what is your ideal 
job or like what what do you see yourself that you're like this is what I would if I were to pick to what I want to do this is what I want to do um you know I'm I have been doing EPL for pretty much my whole career uh, I would be really interested to learn a new line you know cyber is huge right now um you know maybe learning stuff about underwriting. I think it's really important for handlers to understand the underwriting process and vice versa. Um, so I would I would really love to learn, you know, something like, you know, learn exactly what goes into writing policies. Um, ultimately, I mean, ultimate career goal, I'd like to get into a position where, you know, maybe I can manage a team um, and, and provide them with guidance. I, I think I've had, um, you know, a lot of different ex life experiences, um, professionally and personally that I can relate to other people, um, with and, you know, help them on their journey as well. Yeah. And, and I love the, I love the idea of pivoting to learning something new because like, let's face it, like we're, we're not old, we're not old ladies, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's still room to learn and to grow and, you know, find another, area and learn like really dive in and, and learn learn that um and especially when it's like growing areas like like cyber you know there's mm -hmm. there's so much room to grow yeah i mean coverage is so vast you know it's just it's it's really interesting and it's, it's so much of it is, is, is shades of gray it's a lot there's a lot of interpretation when it comes to you know reading policy and contractual language yeah. um and so it's just I, I, it's really great that there are many avenues to explore in insurance you know you can cyber and dno eno move over to casualty you know there's many there's so many options in insurance that that um i, re I really do like and um, I'm hoping, I'm hoping to like get a new experience, um, probably stay in financial lines, but you know, I'm, I wouldn't put anything down. Well, I, I encourage any, any of my listeners listening that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you have, you know, if you have a position or you, you know, reach out to Melissa, start a chat oh, uh, and see if it's a, a good fit for for you and, and for, for everybody, I, I encourage any, anyone tuning in, if they, they think there's a space for, for you at their organization that so before we close up, um, you know, if you were going back to, you know, what you know now about, you know, practicing, going through the practice of, of law and then going on, on to the claim side, you know, what advice would you give to someone who's considering law school? Um, and what advice we give them about one going and, you know, the, you know, some tips as to what to do while they're there to help build their, um, appeal when they graduate as to job prospects. Um, I would advise younger people to know that, you know, it's, it's okay to change your path. You know, we talked about earlier that, you know, you thought you were going to be a patent attorney. I thought I was going to do international law and, you know, our lives took us into different places um, career-wise. And it's, it's okay if your goal, you know, it's okay if you get into, you know, I really like love law, but I don't necessarily know if I want to practice or if you decide to go right into like insurance and then you decide you do want to practice. I mean, you can, there's so many options available. Yeah. one specific role hey if things don't work out the way that you thought they would because they will eventually work out yes yeah I like say this to like my niece and my nephew who are like one's in college the other's applying to college I'm like 
just because where you start, it doesn't mean that's where you finish, <laughs> you know, like you have to be ready to like, things change, you pivot, you know, like I thought I was going to go to med school and here I am, you know, <laughs> life takes turns. You just, it's how you embrace them. Well, Melissa, I really appreciate, you know, you taking out the time to chat, chat with me today. Um, I'm so glad we circled back after, you know, a, a few month hiatus. Um, and, you know, again, I, I appreciate you taking the time and sharing, sharing your journey and your story and where you've been and where you're going. Um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. And for, you know, for our listeners out there, of course, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to The Defense Never Rest, uh, Apple Podcasts. And you can also find us at The Defense Never Rest on YouTube. Thank you.